Welcome to Stories of Recovery, a MAR Recovery Resources production from MAR Addiction Treatment Centers. I'm Matt Shedd. Trisha was 31 years old and facing serious jail time when she got to MAR. Despite being raised in a typical suburban family, early and frequent drug use, along with dealing drugs and what she describes as a dependency on relationships with men, contributed to her life taking a dark turn. I've had my door kicked in by DeKalb County SWAT, and there's sometimes when you step, when I would sit back and I'd say, "What the hell mm-hmm. am I doing?" Like, yeah. But then you don't know how to get out right. because you're in debt to someone so much for whatever they've given you, and then whatever you've given to somebody else, they're in debt to you, and you're just constantly trying to cover this financial obligation. And I'd be in these places, and I'm like, "Where am I? What is happening right now? How did I get here?" She shares with us how the structure at MAR and the relationships with other women in treatment here provided her the guidance she needed to learn how to live in sobriety. But real quick, before we jump into the episode with Trisha, I just wanted to take this opportunity to let people know about the Celebration of Recovery Banquet coming up on November 12th. We are really, really excited about this year's banquet. Lots of alumni coming. Um, We expect the hall to be filled. And we are really, really fortunate to have secured a top-notch speaker. Robert Bell is going to be telling his story. And Robert was actually a guest on this podcast um, on episode 43. So you can go back and listen to that and get excited and and actually go buy your tickets at marinc.org slash banquet. That's M-A-R-R-I-N-C dot O-R-G slash banquet. So anyways, just want to let you all know about that. Go go check that out. Get your tickets now. All right, here's Trisha. So I was at Mar for 13 months, 14 months. Wow. 13 months. I was court mandated for a minimum of a year. Came to Mar and August of 2010, straight from jail. I'd been in jail for three months. So I came in three months sober, jail sober, wanted to be sober, had worked a program in the jail. Um, Mar actually came and evaluated me, a guy named Al. So Al came to the jail. Al talked to me in my private little booth for like four hours And then Al went to court with me and Al stood up in court and said, yeah, we think she needs to be in treatment for a year to a year and a half. And I remember my heart sank because I really thought they were going to say like three to six months. Sure. (laughs) So what year was this? This is 2010. Uh, Okay. So I got sober in 2010. May 17th, 2010 is my sobriety date which I now also share with my three-year-old daughter. It's her oh, birthday. Are you serious? Yeah. Oh, that's And she awesome. was born four weeks early. So for me, it's like the biggest reminder. Like she was due June 11th, and she was born May 17th. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So it's like this big, huge, like comes full circle, and like her being born, she's my third child, was like this big, like, you better stay sober. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like right. just this big, huge like just message to me from God that like this is your day and now you share this day with someone important and 
like continue to do what you're doing. That's beautiful. So yeah. how many years sober were you when she was born? I was nine. So I'm 12, I'm 12. I just picked up 12 years a couple of weeks ago. Congratulations. Thank you. Okay. So they told you a year to a year and a half in court. Yeah. I was in court. Like <laughs> your heart sunk. My heart sunk. Cause I already had a three-year-old daughter at that point. Not that I had been present for my three-year-old daughter's life at that time, but I sure thought I had. You know what I mean? I sure thought that I was, even though I didn't have custody of her, I didn't have anything. I sure thought that I was a good mom. I was out for, I think I was out for 24 hours before I had to report to Mar. And my daughter, she turned four in July, and this was in August. She was actually out of town with her other grandparents, so I didn't even get to see her. And then I came to Mar, and I remember my mom dropping me off at the Women's Center in Lawrenceville, and she was just boo-hooing. And I was like, we're good. We're in the right place. I'm going to do this. And I think I've kind of kept that attitude for the last 12 years. Can I ask you what was going on before that led you to be in jail? So at the time that I was in jail, I was 31 years old. I started using when I was 13. Um, I started using pretty much from the get-go, I started using cocaine in eighth grade. Um, I was actually in rehab when I was 14 years old for trying to commit suicide and for drug and alcohol abuse. Kind of got my stuff together in high school, but Never really. I mean, I was a good student, did things well. Um, you know, I came from a very, as most people will say, I came from a very normal, you know, suburban middle class family. My mom's a school teacher. My dad was a financial consultant. I have an older sister. I danced. I was on swim team. I mean, just very, very normal upbringing. And I was thinking about that when I was driving down here today. Everyone always says, you know, you feel like, oh, you didn't fit in. I never felt like I didn't fit in. I felt like I fit in, but no one could see that I fit in. So I I don't know if that makes sense, but I felt like I always just missed it. Like I would hang out with the right crowd for just a little bit, and then they would decide they didn't want to be friends with me anymore. Or I would almost make the cheerleading squad and be the last person to be cut. Right, just little things like that. It was just always like, you're quite there. You're not quite good enough. You're not quite good enough for this, Trisha. And it's how it kind of felt like my whole life. That's how it kind of was. And then I discovered drugs and alcohol, and I was good at it. Mm. I was really good at it. So from 13 to 31, how would you sum up those using years? I mean, zero to 60 in 0.2 seconds. I mean, seriously, and I wanted to be the best at it, and I was going to be as involved in it as you could in every aspect of drug and alcohol use. If you wanted to get something, I was your person to come to. If you wanted to have a party and to be fun, you called me. So that's interesting because it wasn't it – was, there's like a performative element to uh-huh. that more than like this secret thing that I need to like keep hidden. Oh, yeah. it's funny because when I got – through this point in Mar where I was allowed to have a cell phone, I wouldn't take one. I didn't get a cell phone until I was, had a year sober because I had so much self-esteem wrapped up in people calling me and people wanting me and people needing me. And from selling drugs and doing what I did for so long, I was absolutely petrified to have a cell phone. But it's very much um, 
it was an ego. Yeah. Oh, I, I totally get yeah. that part of it where it's like, you know, and then when people need you for drugs, they really need, need you. you. Yes. <laughs> you're, you're, you're a very you're top important, dog. Yeah. yeah. You're a very important person. So you have that instant kind of power in any sort of relationship. Yes. And yeah, you feel very in demand. Was cocaine always your drug of choice? Methamphetamines. Oh, okay. Gotcha. And that's, and I started using meth when I was 12. 1920. That's what really just destroyed everything. Can you describe how that accelerated things for you? I mean, it just, it took me from the weekend going out to the bar, hanging out with my friends, staying up all night, sleeping a little bit later on Saturday morning Mm -hmm. to full fledged using 24 seven. If I was not using, I was asleep. Even when I was not showing up for jobs, not doing what I need to do, not being able to pay my bills. Mm-hmm. I still didn't look at it as my drug problem was causing these things. Mm-hmm. It was a me problem. Like, okay, Trisha, you need to get up for work. So what would I do? I'd just stay up for work. Mm-hmm. So I'd stay up all night long and then go to work, you know, go to work high, get high in the bathroom at work. And as that's all going on, you're you're also kind of involved in the business aspect. Of, oh, yeah. Yeah. Dating guys who sold drugs and then ultimately selling drugs myself. It's a lifestyle that was very foreign to me that I didn't know anything about until I was in it. Uh-huh. And um, each new boyfriend took me to a new level of it. Was there like a darkness to it? Like – or like – and like, were you like, uh, this is kind of getting scary or was it like all exciting or was it like, what was that? There's definitely a darkness to it. I mean, I've had my door kicked in by DeKalb County SWAT. Okay. Um, while I was home by myself asleep and they took every single penny I had and called my parents. I didn't even live with my parents and I was over the age of 21 and they said, your daughter needs to come stay with y'all for a few days while we investigate this. There are times I showed up at my parents' house and I remember people calling and threatening to kill me at my parents' house. But then things would settle down and I'd leave again Mm. and I'd start right back up. I mean, the things I told my parents, I put my parents through. Yeah. I can't even imagine. But yeah, there's definitely a a major dark side of it. And there's sometimes when you step, when I would sit back and I'd say, what the hell Mm -hmm. am I doing? Like yeah. But then you don't know how to get out right. because you're in debt to someone so much for whatever they've given you. And then whatever you've given to somebody else, they're in debt to you. And you're just constantly trying to cover this financial obligation. Mm-hmm. At least for me, that's yeah. what it was. It was constantly a financial obligation that had to be met in some way. Mm-hmm. I mean, I look back now and I don't know how – I don't know. I'm very lucky yeah. to be alive and not have – the things I've seen, the things I've been, the places that I've, the guns, the people, the, yeah, it's very like, what? Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> now here I am and I'm, you know, like on the PTO and. Right. <laughs> mother of three. Yeah. And, yeah. 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 So it's like, what? The, yeah. Like, that's how I know it. Cause that's just stuff that I can't even imagine mm-hmm. doing. Mm-hmm. I can't even imagine. And there are times when you wouldn't even know that what you were doing, you'd. All of a sudden, like, I would, like, literally feel like I would just come to and I'd be in these places. And I'm like, where am I? What is happening right now? How did I get here? And it always led back to me because of a boyfriend. What's that like going from that high tension, stressed, exciting, you know, using – 
to getting to Mar and living with a bunch of women, going to groups. Like, what was that switch like for Being you? Being stripped of everything, basically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wearing clothes that my mom bought me at Walmart right. because she had thrown everything I owned away oh, because gosh. they didn't know what was in my stuff. Right. So they had just gotten rid of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, it's definitely humbling. Yeah. It was humiliating. Um, it was a big check into what I had done with my life. Very hard to grasp that this is where I was at 31. I had nothing. I didn't have a home. I didn't have a car. Didn't have even have clothes. In this next section, Trisha talks about the difference she felt once she arrived at Mar and how she interacted with others. I was finally able to sit in a room with somebody, become 100% honest about where I was in my life. And if I wasn't being 100% honest, have a group of people who could sit there and tell me, you're not being 100% honest. Mm -hmm. Um, I could sit there and tell my story about the things that I had done to my parents, the things that I had done to my child, and not have people judge me, but have people rather look at me and say, oh, yeah, I've done that too. Or, oh, yeah, I've already been through that. Let me tell you how I'm working through that now. Mm. So for the first time, it was like peers, and it was 100% acceptance. Never was there a time in that part of my treatment that people looked at me and I felt shame. Even in when I had been using and doing the things I had done, especially after I had my daughter, I knew people talked about me. I knew people say, oh, she has a daughter and she's not with her Mm. daughter right now. I didn't get that when I was in treatment. Instead, I got, yeah, I did that too. Yeah, Yeah, I abandoned my child. Yeah, I can relate to how you're feeling about that. But yeah, there was a light at the end of the tunnel, and there had never been a light before. So then you get here, and you had mentioned earlier, I didn't really particularly like women, and and you're here living with women in close quarters and spending your whole day basically with them going to groups and doing all the stuff that you do in the structured treatment environment here. What do you think the value was for that now? Now that you can look back on it, I'm sure it felt like awful oh, when yeah. you're doing well, it. Oh, yeah. The value of it, I can straight up say, was that my worth didn't come from a man. I learned that very quickly. My worth came from myself. All this, my whole life, never had I been without a boyfriend, never had I been without somebody, some man in my life. And then here I was, stripped of that, not being around men to give me any kind of attention. And all of a sudden, I had to build my self-esteem from within and from what other women were telling me about myself, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Mm -hmm. And I had to trust them. And I really learned that it's women who build me up. It's women who are going to have my back and be my friends and listen to me complain or talk about anything. And now I have multiple circles of women that are my best friends. And like the only man I talk to really is my husband. (laughs) But it really, it it did. It taught me that my worth didn't come from a man. Do you remember specific like moments in those 90 days where you're like either in group or in the residences, like where you feel something shift? Like, was there a moment when you're like, oh, I can share that or? Yes. So I know there was a moment of shifting for me when um, in my head, it was like, 
all along, I'm just going to go move back in with my parents. I'm going to go move back in with my parents. And my therapist looked at me and she was like, what are you talking about? You are not leaving here and going to move back in your parents. And that was a shift for me because all of a sudden I realized, oh crap, I'm on my own. Like, oh crap, I have to do this for me. Um, I have to not rely on my parents. So there was a freeing part of that because it was freeing for me because I didn't feel like I no longer had to protect things that I was saying because it wasn't all going to go back to my parents mm-hmm. <laughs> because they weren't there to please my parents. Right. They were there to make sure that I got sober and to help me make my life better, not to please my parents. So there was, I guess, I know it's a weird. No, I, I get yeah, it. Yeah, but there was a thing that I was like, oh, wait, y'all are here for me. <laughs> <laughs> you're not, yeah, you're not here to make my parents happy. Right. You're here to help me without yeah. my parents. Yeah. Wow. During family week. Oh. Yeah, tell us about that. That's brutal. <laughs> family week's really uh, hard. It's happening right here. Yeah, right it's now. happening right here, right now. And oh. I can just feel, I don't know if it's still the same as it was. There's a reason why you don't do it at the beginning of treatment. There's a reason why it comes a little bit towards the after you've been through dealing with some of the hard stuff. But I've never felt so much hope. It also, to me, was one of the first times that I felt like genuinely maybe my parents understood mm-hmm. who I was and what I was dealing with and that I wasn't a bad person, that I just really was dealing with a lot of emotional stuff and I just needed a lot of help. Yeah. And that maybe there was hope. So the first time I felt hope. Mm-hmm. And I remember in like my individual session with my parents afterwards and like the family therapist and my my therapist, I remember that was the first time that I asked if I was going to get my daughter back. And my parents were like, that's the plan. Like that was been the plan. And I had been too afraid for the first two months that I was here to even bring that up or to even ask. And now my daughter's 16 and she really speaks to me, but I have her. (laughs) But she, I mean, but there's so much hope that comes from the healing that I can't even express like what it, how it changes you Mm. and being able to unleash, like release all this baggage that you've been carrying around by yourself for so long and to be able to share it with others and the comfort that you get, it's just, it's just, it's priceless. I just think about being here and, you know, some of it seems so long ago because it's been 12 years, but still some of my best friends are people that I met while I was here. And there's just so much in life that happens when you leave here that I'm just so grateful for the skills that I've been given because even though, like I said, my daughter barely speaks to me, she lives with me and she knows I love her and I know she loves me. (laughs) (laughs) Doubtful on some days, but for the most time, and I have two more children Yeah, and it's just pretty, it's just, it's just a miracle Mm -hmm. when you go back and think about like sitting here talking to you about some of the things in my life that I'm just like, how did I end up here? For my last question, what would you pass on to somebody who's listening if you could pass on one thing? That there is hope. Never in my wildest dreams could I imagine someone like me could have the life that I have today and that I deserve the life that I have today. And that, I think, is the key. 
not just that I have the things that I have or get to do the things that I get to do, but I genuinely feel I'm worthy of these things. I didn't feel any worth before. I didn't feel worthy of anything before. And today I, I know my worth, mm. but it's work and it's not pretty work. But if you do the work, you will come out on the other side. And on the other side, it's so much better than you can even imagine. And it's so scary and it's so hard. And you can come up with 5,000 million quadrillion excuses of why today isn't a good day to start. But each day that you don't start, it's just another day in hell, in my opinion. And each day that you do the work, you're one step closer to happiness, genuine happiness, which I don't know if I'd ever felt that in my life. And today I can genuinely say that my life is good. It's just good. Yeah, there's days that I'm just like, oh, whatever. This, this is not a good day. But man, your worst day in sobriety is still better than your best day in addiction. Mm. You know, um, it's all the cliches I can think of, yeah. but it, that they're all true. Mm-hmm. Every single one of them is true. Mm. It's just there's hope. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome for sharing your story. Yeah, it was it was really moving, and the honesty and and everything that you brought to the table. It's I think it'll help some people. Oh, good. I hope so. All right, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much to Trisha for sharing your story with us. Again, I'm Matt Shedd. Our executive producer is David Tate, and Jordan Detweiler performed our theme music. Thanks again so much for joining us, and we're already looking forward to next time.